So I sometimes, when you watch the film and you see these words coming up on the screen as, as letters, I'm actually singing them in the score. Hey, it's Nadine and welcome back to In Her Lens. In this episode, I chat with today's women in film about their journeys and their careers. Thank you for joining me. And before we hop into today's interview, if you do enjoy this episode and you have been enjoying this season, please leave a quick review and a five-star rating. It helps this podcast reach new audiences, new ears, and helps me share more stories, especially in preparation for all the content still to come. Okay, so with that tiny little ask out of the way, let's go season two, episode seven. This week, I am talking with the wonderful Nainita Desai. Nainita is one of today's most acclaimed composers. Born and brought up in London to Indian parents, Nainita's eclectic musical upbringing led her to studying the sitar, piano, table, guitar, singing, and violin. After receiving a degree in mathematics, she actually attended the National Film and Television School in London. She worked as a sound designer on feature films like Lessons of Darkness with Werner Herzog, her passion for music technology led her to working in the musical engineering world alongside none other than Peter Gabriel, working with artists like Sinead O'Connor. She made the powerful decision to follow her love for music making and into the composing world. Nainita Today is an Ivor Novello, BIFA, Cinema Eyes Honours nominee, a BAFTA Breakthrough Brit, and an IFMCA Breakthrough Composer. If I begin to list her credits, we would still be here tomorrow, thoroughly impressed, I'm sure. She's composed intensely engaging scores for films, TV, documentaries, specials, including the Oscar-nominated film and BAFTA award-winning For Sama, the documentary The Reason I Jump, and Netflix's most-watched doc to date, American Murder, The Family Next Door. So in this episode, Nainita and I start off discussing the score for The Reason I Jump and about how to create using words, images, and prompts from a book. We talk about her roots attending Catholic school during the week and the Hindu temple on the weekends, and her choice to study mathematics. About the handwritten letter she wrote after university to Peter Gabriel, and what she learned as a musical engineer creating sonic worlds. We talk about the film that made me reach out to her, and I highly, highly recommend everybody to watch, For Sama. We relate this work to that of the Netflix documentary American Murder, The Family Next Door, how to focus on who and what the film is about, and how to build a music score in honor of the story. Nainita is probably one of the most impressive and truly heartwarming people I have ever met, and with lots of laughs and a cat interference moment, I am honored to share her story and our conversation with you all. So here is Nainita Desai on In Her Lens. Welcome to In Her Lens. Thank you so much for being here. I am really, truly a huge fan of your work. So I'm really happy that you're here and that we got to manage a time. Thank you. Thank you, Nadine, for having me. It's been wonderful to finally connect with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we're going to dive in to talk about you as and your journey as a composer, um, if you're game, can we start with a little bit of a round of rapid fire questions for us to kind of get to know you a little bit better? Oh, okay. Go for it. I'm terrible at these at these rapid fire things but you know i'll do my best <laughs> we'll figure it out it'll be fine Alrighty, dawn or dusk Ooh, dusk tea or coffee tea definitely wine or beer 
wine, definitely. <laughs> Your go-to karaoke song. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> somewhere uh, from West Side Story. Yes, a good one. That's a really good one. Travel to space or to the bottom of the ocean? Space, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah. An unmissable part of your morning routine. An unmissable part of my morning routine is feeding my cat. Yes. Texts me at the crack of dawn. <laughs> <laughs> um, texting or calling? Um, calling actually. Mm -hmm. Favorite subject in school. Oh, uh, maths. Hmm. A subject that you wish they had taught you in school. <laughs> uh, music, actually. Fair, fair. <laughs> um, appetizer or dessert? Dessert. Hmm. A city that you think people have to visit? Paris. Mm -hmm. Three-hour movie or a 10-hour series? 10 hour series. Last thing that you read. Oh gosh, <laughs> the last thing that I read. Actually, I read a script yesterday, but I can't, I can't talk about that. So um, last thing that I read was, I, I reread The Reason I Jump. Uh, last mm. week. Oh, beautiful. Um, we're gonna talk about The Reason I Jump later. Uh, your favorite meal of the day? Dinner. Last thing that you photographed? Last thing I photographed, what was the last thing I photographed? Let me check, actually, give me a second. The last thing I photographed, ah, last thing I photographed was my cat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, phone calendar or a physical planner? I have a planner, uh, Google Sheets. Mm. Yeah, but, uh, but I actually have a, a collection of beautiful, um, books i write all the time handwriting i love to write um, i'm also very much about writing things down i think it's also the way i learn yeah it helps me process uh all my what i'm doing and uh, and you know the time it takes for you to use your hand and write physically write the words is um you know really uh, important for me for mm -hmm. absorbing information and getting my creative ideas out as well um a movie that you can quote start to finish <laughs> Uh, the sound of music. <laughs> yes, that's also on my list. Um, a movie that you think, or a film that you think everyone has to see. Oh, oh, there's so many. I can't <laughs> answer that. There are just too many. Um, a movie or what, or a TV show? Yeah, can be anything. Oh, okay. Well, I have to say, I'm... Uh, Handmaid's Tale. I'm watching season four, episode one tonight as a treat because it's back in the UK. So Perfect. I am actually on the same episode. I finished it last night, so I'm running a bit behind on the on the on the states. But yes, such. I mean, everyone has to watch this. Um, last two: fall or spring? Um, spring. I always feel better. And what's the last thing that you watched? <laughs> the last thing I watched was um. I was forced to watch an episode of Fargo because I've never watched Fargo. Oh, yeah. Loved it. Um, I, mm -hmm. I dived in into the last episode of season three. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh, I must go back and watch this. Actually, last thing I, I watched um, was Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, also so good. 
This is so good. <laughs> okay, I want to jump straight into your most recent project. That you already mentioned it in the um, uh, in the rapid fire, which is the reason I jump, and then we'll track back a little bit and talk about. Uh, where you came from. Uh, so you're based in London and your most recent score is for the documentary film, The Reason I Jump, that was released this June. Um, and it's based on a bestseller book by Naoki Higashida. And the film is an immersive cinematic exploration of neurodiversity through the experience of non-speaking autistic people. And it actually won at Sundance and it played at the London Film Festival in Toronto and Athens and Doc NYC, just to like name a few. Uh, and your work was also nominated a bunch of times at, at the BIFA Music Awards and the Cinema Eye Honors. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you came on board with this project and had you worked with director uh, Jerry Rothwell before? Uh, well, I met, um, I went to a fantastic film festival, the Sheffield Documentary Film Festival, about four or five years ago. And uh, it was my last day of the festival, I was exhausted. And I had a train to catch, and there was an early morning screening of this film called Sour Grapes. Uh, it's a fantastic film if you've not seen it before. It may still be on Netflix. And I watched it and had to speak to the director afterwards. Mm. I just loved it. And it was Jerry, Jerry Rothwell. And we had a really, really great chat um, after the film. We kept in touch. And then two years later, I got a phone call from Jerry saying, would you like to, would I like to, um, have I worked with Found Sound? Mm -hmm. And um, I said, well, you know, I was actually a sound designer in a former life. Um, so for me, you know, sound and the sounds of the environment and Found Sound is really a part of my DNA. Um, and he said, great, because I'm working on this project, the reason I jump. And um uh, it's it's about neurodiversity and uh, and the way this 13-year-old Japanese boy, Naoki Higashida, who wrote the book, um, perceived the world around him and tried to explain to the world uh, what um, how his his perception of um, of his environment. And um, and so our journey began. And um, I wrote some ideas when we were we had a lot of conversations um, and I love the collaborative nature of, of what I do is you know really a part of the, an integral part of the team and in this particular instance <clears throat> I came brought uh, I was brought on quite early on in the project mm -hmm. uh, I mean they've been doing a lot of filming uh, over a period of a year and the film had been in development for four or five years before that but for a for a compo as a composer I came on board quite early in the process um, just as the editing was starting and I was, I was writing music for about 15 months on and off. Wow. Um, it was quite intense mm -hmm. and, and very experimental and, uh, exploratory. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I did was to dive in and do research. Um, I read the book and absorbed that and, uh, I read a lot of scientific papers about um, sound and music and the way autistic people perceive the environment in a very multi-sensory and heightened way. You know, all their senses are very heightened. And um, and so it was a fascinating world to explore that I didn't really know much about. And that's what I love about writing music for documentaries because I, I, I know a lot about very unique <laughs> stories <laughs> right right so uh and so the journey began and mm -hmm. 
I, I, we had a lot of, we, we created these parameters within uh, which the, the score and the sound design had to interweave and work together. So I worked very closely with the sound designer and, and the editor and the director, and they would send me sound effects that they'd be using in the film. And I'd integrate them into the score and I'd chop them up and loop them and, and do all sorts of things with them. And, and, you know, for me, the story is so important. The authenticity towards a story is important. I brought in, for example, I brought in Elizabeth Wicklander, who is a cellist with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and she's autistic herself. Mm-hmm. And she came to my studio one day and I uh, was, we were having a recording session. I was recording her playing the cello and I showed her a scene in the film as a sort of a pivotal key scene in the film about um, how the Nazis were doing experiments um, with um, with people, you know, uh, um, with disabled people and and how they treated neuro, neuro uh, diverse people um, as though they were subhuman and and I turned around and I looked at Elizabeth and she was crying. I said, oh dear, Elizabeth, you know, what's happened? Is the music that bad? <laughs> mm-hmm. And she said, no, she said, I feel everything that the characters in the, fe- in, in the film are feeling. And she, wow. because she's autistic, she's very, very um, sensitive to, to everything around her and to the point where it becomes overwhelming. You know, there's a, point uh, when she she walked into my kitchen and it was quiet there was no sound and she's turned to me and she said it's very noisy in here isn't it and I said what do you mean and she said I can hear the hum of electricity Mm. and it's exactly the kind of thing that happens in this film that there's a boy in the film whose senses are heightened and he can hear the hum of an electrical generator from a very very long distance away and that was the seed actually it was the seed of um how the score grew in the film mm-hmm. there's a phrase in the book there's a one aspect in the original book which talks about the character naoki who can hear the sound of um, electricity and to him it's almost like the sound of uh like it grows and grows like a choir of angels mm-hmm. and that was uh, that was the starting point for the score so yeah, it was a very interesting process. Um, I'm going to play a little bit um, for the listeners so they can hear what we're talking about. We're going to play uh, Drowning in a Sea of Words from The Reason I Jump. was your instrumental palette like for this score? I um, wanted to keep the sounds acoustically based. I didn't want to use electronics. Mm-hmm. So everything here is created by 
the uh, real instruments, uh, mainly the cello and the violin, and the, I use the human voice as well. I wanted to, I mean, a couple of reasons for that. I wanted to give the characters um, who are non-verbal a voice. The voice that I gave them was, I used the human voice like an instrument. Uh, and the words that you hear, if you can hear words, they're garbled uh, together. Mm -hmm. Phrases that I took from the original uh, English translation, I trans translated them back into the Japanese words. Uh -huh. And I took key phrases from the book like beautiful circle and we are outside the flow of time. We constructed them in, um, in a musical way in the, uh, in the, in the score. And, and when you see the words in there, there are moments where some of the characters use an, use an alphabet board to communicate. Mm -hmm. They type letters, um, and, uh, and then a voice comes up on the screen and says, so I sometimes when you watch the film and you see these words coming up on the screen as, as letters, I'm actually singing them in the score. Uh, ah, wow. I wanted to give each of the characters a kind of a different musical instrument as well. Some other, I mean, these are all sort of very thought out uh, parameters within which the score had to sit. When ultimately, what I wanted to do was try to translate all the perceptions of autism into music. Mm -hmm. So the characters in the film experience time in a different way. You know, a, an event that happens to someone when they're three or four years old comes flooding back to them in a very heightened way uh, when when he's a teenager. This, this happens to Joss in the film. Neurodiverse people, I mean, this, ex, this experience is different for everyone, but right, right. generally uh, perceive the detail in objects before they see the whole picture. Whereas neurotypical people like you or I will see the whole before we see the detail. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I wanted to bring that across in the music by creating tiny fragments of a little pieces of a jigsaw puzzle coming together that then come together and form a whole. And, um, and, and the idea of repetition, there's the character of Justina who um, creates beautiful drawings and art from the world around her. And she, um, is very drawn to circular repetitive moments and circular motion because it it has a very cathartic release for her. So mm. I brought in those aspects where you hear um, loops of sounds going round and round and all interweaving together. So, you know, it's quite uh, conceptual, mm. very emotive. They're, I mean, they're real, we, Whereas the, the sound design in the film reflects the abstract ideas of autism, the music had to also bring out the emotional aspect of these characters. Yeah. The fine line, we didn't want to be, we don't want to feel too much sympathy for the characters, but we want to feel empathy for them. Mm -hmm. and, and musically, it's the closest that I've ever got to my own musical voice my own personal musical voice very special i know that you mentioned that you worked from the book how much of the film were you seeing when you were building the score and what was this experience like w working from a book and rather than an image in the beginning 
Well, I'm very visually inspired normally. You know, you you put a, a set of images in front of me and I, I, and I know instantly what to write. Not always, generally. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very inspired by the tone and the look and the colour and the textures of art. You know, as, as inspiration, I'll go to art galleries and I... And I hear music in my head when I see art. But with this, I had no images. I just had, I hung on to the words and the conversations that I um, had with the director mm -hmm. and reading the book and, and reading scripts and you know, reading texts. That informs me in a different way because in a way my imagination can run riot um, mm -hmm. when I don't have images. So I wrote a lot of ideas um, before seeing images and before seeing the film, um, just going by the ideas of the book and, and so on. And, uh, and then I gave the director, I wrote a lot of, lot of, uh, sketches and tracks and I gave the director a whole load of music to work with. They give me scenes, um, once he put my ideas in and say, well, you know, let's try something here. Let's go down this path and that path. And so it was a, it was a very much an organic evolutionary process. And even with the musicians, I actually had normally, I'll, when I work with musicians, I know exactly what I want them to play. So I'll write the musical parts. And I did do that to a, to a certain extent, but sometimes I brought in musicians not knowing what we were going to do. And that, that can be a bit scary. And we'd have these semi-improvised recording sessions where um, I had this fantastic one with, um, with a cellist where I said, you can only play five musical notes. And when I point my finger upwards, you will play uh, go up a tone. And when I point my finger downwards, you'll go down a tone. Wow. And so we recorded a line on the cello. And then we played it again and we did it again and again and again. And we layered these cellos parts mm. and it sounded like a sea of cellos, which was really, really interesting. Really cool. Really and, cool. And that's quite unusual to do that. And, but it, and it was a very exciting process as well. Create a whole load of music from sessions like that and then given to the director and he and and in my mind i'd be thinking oh this would be this piece will be useful for a certain scene and the director would take them out of context and use them for something totally different right. and have these happy accidents that sort of this magic of mm -hmm. how music and images can come together and create something greater than the sum of the parts and that's what i love about the power of of film and sound. Yeah, and, and it is always something that I fall so hard for when I'm watching films and documentaries, and especially when scores are really worked out when I'm watching a documentary, it is that connection of it's moving, it carries the empathy or um, the endurance. It's very exciting. So now that we've heard a little bit about your recent work, I want to jump back to the beginning and I want to talk about your journey to, to today. And to creating some of today's most moving scores, I have to say. You were born and raised in London, where you are still based today. What did your childhood look like? And tell us a little bit about your home life. So, yeah, so I was born and brought up in London and uh, to second, I'm second generation uh, British Indian. Um, and I went to a Church of England school, uh, but I, but during the weekend, I was brought up as a Hindu and I had to go to the Hindu temple. Mm -hmm. So 
them, I had this kind of mishmash of, of different cultures, mm-hmm. which I really value today. Um, I studied Indian classical instruments and uh, at home, which is incredibly disciplined and very strict. Mm. I had very uh, liberal parents, um, but at the same time, you know, they're very sort of rooted, rooted in Indian culture. I was... I went to, I got a degree in mathematics because I guess I was, you know, as a teenager, I was immersed in music. I was in school bands. I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be Barbara Streisand. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all, don't we all? (laughs) And uh, I was, you know, film was my world. I loved film uh, and and I loved music, always did. But it was never something that I that I could envisage taking on as a career. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just, just you know, an, a, an Indian girl, you know, being brought up in London would just never, you know, to be a professional composer was something that I couldn't even contemplate mm-hmm. because I didn't do it as a living. So I, so I thought, okay, what am I good at? Um, math. And I loved maths. I loved the beauty of numbers. Mm-hmm. I went to um, do a degree in mathematics. And at the same time, I was building up my home recording studio and I'd buy equipment and I'd, you know, dabble with recording and writing singer songs, you know, writing songs and recording mm-hmm. and stuff. And, um, and I loved film as well. While I was at university, I, w- I ran the, um, uh, I was the film critic for the student newspaper or <laughs> <laughs> the private preview screenings of films before they were released in the cinemas, which was amazing. You know, I was in heaven. Yeah. When I finished university, I got, um, I just fell in love with sound and film sound. I love the Coen brothers. Mm. I remember watching Barton Fink and just loving the sound design in the film. And so I, um, I uh, got a scholarship. I just applied to the National Film and Television School, which is the best film schools in, in the world and the best in the UK. And uh, and I got a scholarship. They accepted me, and I went there to study sound design. Mm-hmm. And I left film school, and I became a sound designer on feature films, and worked uh, with Werner Herzog and Bernardo Bertolucci on on some films um, as a freelance sound designer. And that really gave me a great foundation in film, sound, and music, and the place of the, the power of sound in film mm-hmm. um, and how you can tell a story with sound. But uh, but my mu- I had such strong musical aspirations as well. So I I then got work as an assistant music engineer to Peter Gabriel, writing him a, a handwritten letter. Um, in fact, I'd met him at university, and uh, he he came to the university to see what the students were doing, and I got introduced to him. And, uh, and he said, oh, it's really interesting work you're doing, Anita. Look me up when you finish university. Of course, I didn't because I had gone into the film industry. Mm-hmm. Two, three years later, I remembered what Peter said. He said, you know, contact him. So I did. And I actually got a phone call back saying, Fantastic. come and see me. Um, so I, uh, I went to his legendary recording studios called Real World in, mm-hmm. in Bath in the UK. And I got offered a job on the spot saying, would you like to be Peter's assistant um, this summer? 
um, in his studio. And it, I mean, it was like a dream come true for me. Mm. And I got to work with Daniel Lenoir and Sinead O'Connor and Tori Amos and uh, Billy Cobham. And I mean, just amazing producers, engineers, amazing, uh, incredible uh, musicians and artists. Because composing is one thing and, and, and creating sound scores, but obviously musical engineering is like a whole other thing. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences and at the intersection that you find yourself at when it comes to those? Well, I was very um, technically orientated. You know, as, as a teenager, I was really into computers. I was a bit of a geek. And I was very interested in the sound of records. You know, like I, I discovered Daniel Lenoir mm -hmm. and I discovered that he produced... Um, the Neville Brothers and U2 and worked with Brian Eno and and um, all these incredible artists that that engineers create the sonic world of all these artists. Mm -hmm. You know, use and you engineer an artist. It's not just the the words and the lyrics and and the the, the melodies. It's the whole recording process that's involved and, and you're creating a sonic signature for an artist. Mm -hmm. That is something that really interested me, you know, sort of, because I, I actually suffered from stage fright. I, um, mm. you know, wanted to be a singer. I, I couldn't be the front person. I wanted to be, work behind the scenes and to be a part of the whole recording process and producing mm -hmm. process. And, you know, and to sit in a, I remember being on location as a boom op, as a sound recordist and, and standing in Soho at four o'clock in the morning on a night shoot with, in the pouring rain thinking, why am I doing this? <laughs> but I, I, I relate to this so much as like an actor and also just a young filmmaker and even creating this podcast uh, remotely is you know, it's it, it, those jobs and those um, those gigs and those experiences of doing the hard things and not doing the exact thing that you want, but it's really close to it and supporting a project. And yeah, being a, just being a part of the world is such an essential experience to have as um, as a young professional and holding that boom and having your arms hurt and having no break and <laughs> no <Yeah>. money. <laughs> and it was, I remember as a film student, I um, was doing a 4 a.m. shoot in the pouring rain in the cold, freezing winter. And I went to, at the end of the shoot, my, I was physically exhausted. I went to my car and my car wasn't there and it had been towed away because no. I, ticket off you know to try to the car pound to get my car released and I thought that was a moment for me where I thought I think I prefer being in a warm cozy recording studio <laughs> this has been fun guys yeah but such such essential um life moments you know those are the things that really really impact you yeah I'll never forget that and um and and I remember you know, so being behind the scenes working in with music technology and synthesizers and recording equipment and I love that. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's a, there's a show called Doctor Who. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's quite a legendary show here in uh, that's been running for about fifty years, if not more. The composer, uh, her name was Delia Derbyshire. And she was the first woman to work at the BBC, creating, manipulating, working with sound. And he was a huge influence on me. Mm -hmm. She had 
a background in mathematics and in music as well. And wow. um, um, I happened to have those, you know, those those aspects, those skills that I'd learned, and mm-hmm. and it was very inspiring for me. Um, and so I, so yeah, to answer your question, Nadine, um, I wanted to work in music engineering, and that was amazing. You know, working with artists and and working with musicians. And the one thing I learned working with Peter Gabriel was that it's all about capturing the magic of performance mm. you have you're working with someone uh, with great players um and they're just playing away and, and what peter does is he records everything it's a bit like being location and you're doing take after take after take but with peter you know there's this interesting thing being creative in the moment where you work with a musician and or you, an actor will do a take and after the second or third take, they reach, well, with music anyway, I feel that when you're improvising, uh, doing improv, you reach the, the peak of your performance after the third take. And then after that, you become too familiar and it's sort of, you, you go on this, you know, your creativity declines. And um, I mean, it's slightly different with acting, I guess, because you're different. You want to bring out different nuances in a in a part or a or a take. Yeah, or... but it's very easy to get kind of into a rhythm after a couple of of takes. But those usually it's the first the first or third take that is best. Yeah, when you're working with your your gut instinct and you're fresh to it, mm-hmm. and uh, so that so I learned about trying to capture the magic before it becomes too stale. Mm-hmm. And then I transitioned from music engineering into composing and, and sound design. I remember there was one of those key moments when I was sat working on, on feature films and I just thought, this is not creative enough for me. And I remember getting offered a, a job, which was um, a feature film with Kate Blanchett, mm. historical period feature that she did. And... Um, and it was a really great job. And as a freelancer, you know, I wanted the money was great and it was six months work. And I thought this is fantastic. And but I really wanted to do music and I no one had paid me to write music for them ever. So I made that hard decision and I got this call and I said, would you like to work on this Tate Blanchett film called Elizabeth? And I said, I'd love to, but I'm a composer. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And I put the phone down. And that was one of those eureka moments. I thought, what have I done? You know, <laughs> yeah. But I thought, if, you, if I don't close that door, you know, you only live one life. And I thought, I have to go for it. I have to, have to. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I uh, took that plunge and had no money. You know, I was back to square one. I thought, right, I'm a composer, but I, in my mind, I'm a composer. <laughs> in reality, you know, and I had a recording studio, and <clears throat> working with and worked with Peter Gabriel, um, I'd met a, um, a music supervisor who um, knew that I wanted to be a composer, and uh, he gave me a break and said, "Look, Anita, we're doing this show for Channel Four in the UK. It's a travel adventure series called The Lonely Planet, which is based on the Lonely Planet guidebooks." And I was really into world music, uh, having worked with Peter Gabriel. And he said, do you want to do you want to um, write the music for one of the shows? And I just said, yes. And then I panicked. And 
I don't know what to do. I don't know how to write a picture. I don't know how to write a TV. And um, and it's I just stayed up all day and all night and and just took the plunge and dived in and um, yeah, just wrote lots of music and taught myself how to how to compose um, for film. And I think I got through it. He liked the music that I did, and they said, "Would you like to do another show?" And that was the beginning of you know how I just you know started to compose professionally. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, and it's um, such a such a journey, and so many twists and turns. But it's so admirable, and thank you for sharing, and so affirming that following your gut instinct and following intuition and going for your dream and going for the thing that you really want the opportunity is there, but it is that saying no to that one project or owning, even just saying, I am a composer, or I am this. It's like an affirmation. It's like a morning affirmation to say to yourself is owning who you are. And that is such a huge step to take and, and so difficult. If you had to boil it down, what does your studio look like? And what would you recommend an early career composer? I know you mentioned you were buying stuff when you were in uni to kind of do a home studio. What What do you recommend an early career composer get their hands on? You know, when I started, you need loads of gear. I had so much equipment um, that I that I sort of buy synthesizers and I bought a computer. And and now you need very little. I mean, you can see my studio because we're on we're on Zoom here. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of synthesizers. You can see my cat. I sleep. see the cat. Yes, and uh, and lots of computer screens and and lots of equipment. But the reality is, is that all you really need is a head full of ideas, a laptop, um, a decent microphone with a decent audio interface and a keyboard uh, and samples and a microphone to go out and record your own sounds and mm-hmm. create something unique. And um, that's all you really need to compose music. I have a little mini portable setup um, that I take, you know, if I'm traveling and I'll go to a hotel room and I'll have my setup with a pair of headphones and uh, and I can write music wherever I, wherever I can, wherever I want to. Um, and but it's 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 great, you know. As much as I've sort of got thousands of dollars worth of equipment in my studio, the reality is is that having too much choice is not a good thing. Mm. You know, sometimes I think that the music that I composed in the early days of my career was so much more inventive and creative because I didn't have very much, and so I had to think creatively and and make the most of what I had mm-hmm. and and it gets harder on every job and so what i do with each project is i i i limit myself i'll say all i'm going to use on this project is a kazoo and a didgeridoo and a violin you know it just yeah. you create a unique sound palette for each project your head full of ideas which i think is a very very good one yeah so when prepping for this interview in complete honesty i didn't even know where to start because you've worked on so many very incredible projects and pieces and i first encountered your work uh when i watched for sama which is directed by wadak keep it is the first time that i was like oh this is 
I was I was googling who actually made the music for this, and the, that is when I first. But I realized as I was as I was learning about your work that I have been listening and moved by your work for for a lot longer. Is there one of your earlier projects that you particularly remember fundamentally kind of shifting you um, as a professional composer? And can you tell us a little bit about that experience? My career has been like a, a series of breaks, and. <laughs> um, you know, I go from one break to another. I, I tend to put myself into situations that terrify me because I feel that's where I do my most interesting and best work. But it's so I'm in a constant state of heightened stress when I'm composing because um, because I you know it's I think it it's healthy stress. It's important I think you know having deadlines. You know, I, I like to have deadlines when I'm composing and, and, and feel that I'm in a slight, you know, situation of, of, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, but I'm under control. I can manage it and I can control it. Um, and so there's, there's a project I did about five years ago, five, six years ago, actually. Uh, I only know it was six years ago because the Facebook anniversary came up on my phone today. <laughs> <laughs> perfect timing and it's um I, I was approached by a director to write a documentary musical which kind of breaks form and structure and something that i'd never i'd never written songs before really mm. and to be approached to write a musical was very um just such an attractive proposition but one that filled me with fear because I thought, mm. I don't know what I'm doing here. But I just said, yes. The director said, can you write in five different languages? I said, yes. Can you write songs? I said, yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yes. And you've got five weeks to do this. I said, okay. Um, and I, and it's, it, was, it's like, it was like a pivotal project for me. It was actually a film called, a mu BBC documentary musical called um, Mumbai High and it's a, mm -hmm. six teenagers living in the slums of Mumbai um, who wanted to study their way out of poverty and a little bit inspired by uh, Slumdog Millionaire and it was um, it was just such a beautiful project to work on but at the time terrifying because I had such little time uh, a ridiculously short amount of time to write the, write the songs in but I had to write songs and, and write lyrics that um, represented and uh, told the story of each of these individuals, which was just so heartwarming and beautiful and, and sometimes very tragic stories as well, very difficult subjects. And, um, and of course, I only speak English. <laughs> I write them in five different languages. So... So I wrote these lyrics in English with all the rhyming and the meter and the, the you know, like poetry. It all worked in, as English song, English-based songs. And then I brought in a, um, an Indian lyricist who translated my words into um, uh, Hindi and Marathi and Punjabi and, you know, all, all these dialects um, mm -hmm. and, and Urdu and translated them into those languages. But I worked with closely with him so that we still retained the intention and the and the meaning and the rhyming and the poetry and the rhythm. It all worked. I and mean, I I look back on it, I don't know how I did it or how we did it. Mm -hmm. 
I got to fly, uh, go out to India just before the monsoon and work with these amazing kids who couldn't sing and they couldn't dance because they were just, their stories were amazing, but they're not actors or singers or dancers. And, you know, what was one of those golden rules, don't work with children and don't work with animals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was working with children and it was, um, it was just the most incredible experience ever. And it transformed me. It was a very personal project. It was a bit like I, because I'm born and brought up in the UK, it was, it was like going home for me. Then catapulted me onto uh, this BAFTA breakthrough accolade that I received. And that opened up doors for me in my career into writing music for um, video games and and that led on to for summer mm-hmm. you'd never know as much as you try to um carve your career out and say this is what i want to do you know i want to i want to write music for big hollywood features which is something that i thought i might you know i aspire to as any composer uh, film and tv composer would want you know your your dreams change and you know i'm just so grateful to be making a living out of writing music and writing music for projects that resonate with me as a human being and and you know for summer was a pivotal project for me which was a two-year journey and it it's a transformative film and it was transformative for me as a human being as well and just you know, the subject matter and it, it's just one of those astonishing films that uh, to work with wide alcatiz and um to you know, discover what it means to be human. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, for Sama is probably one of the most important films that I've ever seen. And it, it it is so, for the people who haven't seen it, it is a love letter from mother to daughter. Um, and the film tells the story of Wad Al-Khatib, um, who is also the director during the five years that she is in the uprising in Aleppo and she falls in love and marries and gives birth to her daughter. talk about it a little bit because for Sama and American Murder actually the family next door are they're very different films but they both are extremely sensitive in nature and what you were saying a little bit earlier about choosing um, projects that are feel close to you and that you're uh, impacted by is something that I see so clearly in the trajectory of of, of your career um, when were you approached about the work for for Sama and what the first stages look like I was connected with the uh, director by the sound designer on the film who, who I'd worked with before. And um, the, uh, the co-director, Ed Watts, Edward Watts, uh, was working with WAD. And he was handling the post-production side, the, the editing side. But of course, WAD was there as well. And so they, they contacted me, sent me a 20-minute sequence of the film just to watch before we had a meeting. And I remember watching it in my studio, totally flabbergasted by by the footage and the material, and not knowing if Wad was alive or not. Um, mm. 
because I didn't really know anything else. I, it, it's so heart in your mouth, you know, the, the, the scenes that you're watching was so powerful. So I actually went to the edit for a meeting and I, I remember meeting Vlad for the first time and she was sitting on the floor laughing and eating ice cream. It was the hot summer's day. And the first thing I said to Wad was, oh, my God, you're alive. You know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'd only seen a little bit of the film and I wanted to know how it ended. Mm -hmm. um, and so that began, began a, a two-year journey. Uh, um, and the original brief was to write a very rich Hollywood symphonic score, a little bit like Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, wow. Very different. <laughs> yeah. It turned out. <laughs> like a, a war movie, you know. Mm. And I wrote about 80, 80 tracks, 80 themes in the first three months of the edit. And then there was a pause in the edit. And in the film is, is amazing, but the film wasn't quite working. And people the execs and the, you know the teams of people involved couldn't quite put their finger on it why it wasn't working in as a film there was something missing and they then sort of re you know took a fresh look at it after a break and realized that the true heart of the film is this relationship between a mother and her daughter of course when they re-edited the film and we were working you know over those months and months we realized that the music that I had written was no longer working. It had to be about this intimate story, relationship, you know, drama. Um, and so we stripped all the music back to its core basics. And I brought in, a, you know, and authenticity is really important to me to be true to a story and to treat the subject, <clears throat> to treat a subject with integrity. Mm -hmm. So I brought in, I found this violinist who's um, a Syrian refugee. Uh, living in Italy at the time and um, he I contacted him and um, he plays the violin the Syrian violin mm -hmm. as you see the city of Aleppo crumbling all around you you know the the film is the, the, the city is falling apart and the dis destroyed buildings and the rubble everywhere and the grit and the the tough the rough textures of the film the violin <clears throat> that you hear by, played by um, Al-Ashid, this great violinist, is not this pure classical Western violin. It's this raw, gritty sound. And that really echoed the texture of the city. And it became the beating heart of Aleppo. Mm -hmm. So it's very subtle, the music. Um, you know, silence is really important where you're hearing the bombs and the shelling going on all around you. And I ha originally had this, uh, there's a big tense moment in the film where they're in this open top vehicle driving through the city and you're hearing the shelling and the bombs going on. And, uh, and we had this Hollywood type track playing. I thought, why do we need this? Let's strip it right back. And it all mm -hmm. went through a heartbeat of a drum. And, and sometimes you can't discern between if it's a sound of a bomb or if it's a sound of a drum beat playing mm -hmm. very um, under the radar. And, and as a sound designer, you know, going back to my roots, <clears throat> it's all about telling a story through sound. You don't have to have big music playing. And, and funny enough, the two most powerful moments in the film for me, this moment where you see this woman giving birth 
uh, cesarean birth. And this other scene where these two young boys are bringing in their brother into the hospital, their third brother who's died. Um, and the, and you see the boys break down in tears and you see this baby give, uh, being born, which seems to go on for an eon in time. Um, it's about two and a half minutes and you, you're wondering, is this baby going to make it alive or not? It's not breathing, you know, mm -hmm. it's blue. And those two scenes are incredibly powerful, but there's no music on them. And I, we had music on those scenes originally, you know, it's sort of emotional music. And we, and we thought, we don't need the music here. You know, I'm, I'm talking myself out of a job here, but <laughs> the film is the most, you know, it's my job as a composer to serve the film and to serve the needs of the film. And, and what does the story need? And you, we took the music away and it became much more powerful without the music. Mm -hmm. Where to use music and where not to use music is, is really important. Yeah, yeah, it's such a poignant and what you were saying, like this almost minimalist field score, but it's it really is it's empathy and it's endurance and um it's hopeful in moments and obviously it's an incredibly devastating um subject matter. It is about humanity and, and humans at the core are hopeful. Yeah, there's a song at the end of the film. Um uh, at the, the, you see a montage at the end of the film of about four minutes, I think, with words, you know, reflecting on, on everything that's happened over the years. <clears throat> and um, there was a lullaby that Wad had listened to that was really famous and had a huge significant meaning for her. And she said, Anita, can you, can you do a version of this? song this uh, beautiful song that i grew up with you know it, it, it's funny working i've never experienced before working with a director who is also in the film film about her life and so i felt that responsibility on my shoulders to to be true to her life and true to her story and that was a really poignant moment writing that um that piece of music for her unique experience like you were saying to work with um, the director who is also the subject on such a subject matter American Murder the family next door I kind of want to transition to talk about that is completely different in subject matter follows the story of the murder of Shannon Watts and uses a lot of archival footage and social media clips um, but it is also very uh, very complicated terrain uh, and dark story how did you dictate what instrument make up that kind of oral landscape? In a funny kind of way, it's not so different from uh, For Summer because the director, Jenny Popplewell, wanted, the, uh, wanted a score that sounded like a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. but she didn't want to focus on Chris Watts, she want the, the murderer. She wanted to focus on Shanann, um, who is this you know, amazing woman, uh, self-made woman. Um, and, and she wanted to focus on her story and tell the story from the victim's perspective. And when I was, uh, when the story was described to me before I worked on it, um, it was quite sort of scary. You know, I, I, she said she wants to treat it as though Shanann's come back from the dead to tell her story using her voice and using her very personal material and personal footage. 
um, and of course we have Shannon's family as well still alive you know and 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 they'd given consent to tell uh, her story they'd given the director this hard drive of material to work with so so I again I felt that responsibility and for me when I work with um, I actually get to meet and sometimes work with the contributors and that's really quite that's more important to me than than anything uh, and and the most rewarding aspect is to work with um, you know to hear from contributors afterwards and say you know you know they, they the, the family contacted me and said thank you so much I loved what you did and you know you you did justice to Shannon's story mm-hmm. I wanted it to be quite an, an intimate sound um, I'm sorry Nadine my like I've just got to let my cat out the door. He's of course, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah no worries. <laughs> you know what cats are like. You close the door and they've got to get out. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was. It's because it's this kind of intimate story. You know, you have the juxtaposition of the happy days of their relationship and the marriage and the seven-year relationship, and then things take a twist for the dark. Mm-hmm. Because the film is based on social media using the mobile phone and Facebook and text messages. I just thought that it was, uh, I wanted to create, we needed to create tension with percussion. So I thought, why don't I actually use the mobile phone, use the cell phone like a musical instrument? And I started, um, you know, tapping on it. Um, Very cool. (laughs) And you you hear the sound when someone's texting, you hear the click, click, clickety click. Mm-hmm. So I actually turned those sounds that I recorded into musical percussion rhythms and integrated them into the score and into these scenes, these scenes where you see texts coming up on, on the screen. And then I, uh, and because it was, I got the job during the commission during the first lockdown last March and all the recording videos and all the musicians had gone out of work you know they shut down and Netflix said to me well we want a live orchestral score with real musicians for this and I thought this is not going to happen um, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't want to let those restrictions of the pandemic sort of restrict my ambitions creative ambitions for the score so I put together um, a core ensemble of uh, five musicians, and we record. I recorded them all remotely, uh, which was really um, it was really challenging. And so everyone yeah. in their kitchens and their living rooms, and I'd be in my studio, and my engineer would be in his studio, and we used technology. We used Zoom and WhatsApp, and you know. Uh, apps on on the uh, on the Mac Pro, you know, computer software, um, to um, to record them all, and we, by doing that, we created this intimate score, you know, intimately just springs and um, and and piece them together with some electronics and with the sound of the cell phone as a musical instrument. I also took sounds of oil drums that the. I mean, it's really unpleasant but the bodies were found in these big oil containers and mm-hmm. in the middle of the desert and so I took the original sound recordings of these oil tanks and created music out of them. It's such a layering of 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 so so many different um creative um 
involved sounds because of the cell phone. It, it's so creative to look at it in a way where it's like, I'm not going to use just a percussion. I'm actually going to use something that is a part of this world, the oil drums that yeah. is. And it's a way for me to dive into the world of the film. And even if the audience are not, don't notice it uh, in an obvious way, it can actually mm -hmm. it affects them subliminally. You know, yeah, and I find that really interesting about, about music scores is sometimes you don't even notice that you're being moved by the sound. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all seeps into your subconscious when you're watching a film or a TV show. You don't realize, but it's all going in. And, you know, and I, you know, that's what that's what's so powerful about the combination of the most important thing is the dialogue. And, you know, like you know, when you have, if it's a documentary or a or a, a fiction piece of fiction, I treat vocals, uh, you know, whether it's a spoken or you know the spoken word, as though it were the lead dialogue in a song, and I always have it on my computer screen and I'm composing. I'm always listening to the words in the scene and to the actors and the contributors, and and I and I craft music around the dialogue. You know, I, I'm always amazed at how people respond to the music for Four Summer because when I wrote it, it was a big score and we pared it down so that it's very, very minimal. And I thought, well, no one's going to notice the music in this. You know, mm -hmm. and that's not the point. And, um, and the feedback and the response that I got from people after watching the film was just the most moving. People like to notice mm -hmm. the music, <laughs> but... You are so swept up in the in the in the amazing story of American murder, and and is like filmmakers take the audience on a journey from the start to the finish of a scene. I want to take the audience on a musical journey through the ten hours of the series, or you know, you want to take in all the highs, emotional highs and lows, um, and that takes a lot of. Um, sometimes I'll score it chronologically. So that I, I want to be surprised by the story when I'm composing it as well. And sometimes I don't know what's going to happen. And I, I, you know, like scoring, working from your gut instinct, I'll write the first piece of music. I'll, I'll watch a scene for the first time and I'll respond to it emotionally, you know, in a very visceral way. Mm -hmm. Because when, when you see a scene again and again and again, you will lose, lose that fresh, it's like watching a horror movie. You know, the second time and the third time you see it, you you're not um, you're not scared anymore because no, you know what's coming. Yeah, man's round the corner. <laughs> it's such a beautiful gift you have, which is the the hearing of sounds, like you said earlier um, in our conversation too. Going to the art museums and looking at art and hearing it, it's such an interesting thing. And I think also what you mentioned about you know serving the film and serving the story more than anything is and not knowing where you're going to end up is so the nature of collaborative filmmaking and, and filmmaking at its, at its best is where you're working on one thing and it's not all these separate elements that come together. It's growing together and, and moving together. And I think that that's really, really exciting. Yeah. And it, yeah. It's funny being a skit, uh, being a composer is a slightly sort of a, a schizophrenic uh, profession <clears throat> work on my own in an isolated room for many hours a day and uh, be able to channel all these emotions into out through into music 
But at the same time, <clears throat> I love collaborating and I wor love working with teams. I love working with filmmakers and editors mm -hmm. and producers. And I also love working with musicians, you know, and, and, and here I think the most, one of the most satisfying things in terms of the music composition process is I'll write music on my computer, on my keyboards all day, or my room full of instruments, and then I'll take it to an orchestra, to a recording studio, and my music will be brought to life by real human beings. And that is the best feeling in the world. Yeah, and that really is like, I, I always view music as kind of the highest of art forms. It is something that is so intangible and something that lives so beyond any, everyone can talk about it, but the feelings that you get from a certain song or a certain movement is, is, is this other realm. Um, Last thing we're going to touch on, you know, this is um, a podcast about women in film. You sit on the film committee at the BAFTAs. You are also a part of a bunch of other committees, PRS, the Ivers Academy. Um, you're an ambassador for Screen Skills UK. Uh, you're a voting member of the Academy of Motion Pictures, the BAFTAs, the Emmys. You're part of the Alliance of uh, Women Film Composers. And you give so many master classes at different schools and conservatories. Um, I do want to have a bit of a frank conversation about the realities of, of, of being a woman in film and particularly in the composing and engineering field, being a woman with color in those spaces. If there's anything that you want to share about um, what that looks like and how it really is right now and who are in the rooms and making the decisions and creating the work. You know, when I started in the industry, <clears throat> I had no, I had virtually no female role models. All my role models were, you know, people that I aspired to, you know, in, in composition, in music composing, were um, old white men. <laughs> I think maybe my career has taken longer to get off the ground. I don't know. I don't have the proof, but but I feel that I could have got there a lot quicker in, in terms of, you know, doing the kinds of projects that, that I'm working on now. And um, I guess I'm a late developer. I don't know, but it was tough, you know, um, I can't put my finger on it and say that I was the victim of, you know, uh, these kinds of biases, but, but we, we all suffer from unconscious bias. And I think that only in the last five years, things have been really, really changing. Mm. And I noticed it because I know what it was like before for me, mm -hmm. you know, a spotlight was being shone on uh, women in all areas of the industry of the the film and the and the arts and it's it's very very refreshing and re and and comforting to know that um that that's happening with lots of initiatives and schemes and, and that's why i you know i for me it's very important to go out into the world and be a part of the change instead of talking about it we need to do something about it and Finally, that's happening. And I hope that it's not just, we need to keep the pressure on. I hope that it's not just a flash in the pan and that it's mm -hmm. just a, a talking shop, you know. I mean, yeah. we've had lots of discussions about it, you know. I, I mean, I, I'm invited to be on panels. And I, and I know that, okay, I am being asked to be on a panel because uh, as, a, as a token woman, and mm. a person of color but at the same time i think um it's important to do it and and, and there are so many female 
artists working out there in the industry now and they're really coming through um, and mm -hmm. that's exciting to see like uh, marvel for example mm -hmm. Pinar Toprak was the first female composer, you know, writing the music for Captain Marvel. Um, Laura Cartman, who's written the music for the upcoming series, What If? And Marvel, for example, are one of those companies that are not just talking about it, they're doing it. We just need to do action rather than words. Put your money where your mouth is, as they say. I mean, I'm yeah. sort of tired of talking about it. You know, we just need to do it. Anita, thank you for joining me. This was an absolute blast and I'm just really excited to have spoken with you. Thank you for sharing your stories and your thoughts and your journey. Final question for each episode of this season is if you could look at your younger self, let's make her 10 years old today, what would you tell her? Believe in yourself. You know, I, I didn't pluck up the courage to go for my dreams and I think you, I, I very much think you only have one life to live. I know it's a real cliche, but that's kind of my motto. Tenacity, perseverance, just never, never giving up. Uh, being the kind of person that people want to have around, you know, just have in curiosity and enthusiasm and passion. <laughs> That's this week's episode. Thank you for listening. I hope that you feel as inspired by Nanita and touched by her work as I do. I am truly honored that you joined me and I will see you next week. Cheers. Bye.